Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to be today, as this is actually the second to last message that we're going to be doing in the parables of Jesus. We've been looking at these parables over the last number of weeks because I've told you, our mission as a church uh, is the mission that God gave to his disciples. Uh, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We believe that we, when saved by Jesus Christ, are now called to be his followers. And what a better way to be a follower of the one you're following than to know what he says. And he does so much teaching and so much instruction in and through these parables to us and to those that we're listening. So that's what we've been doing. We've been just coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to these parables. So, so we're going to do that this week. Uh, we got this one that we have in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, and then we're going to come and do one more before going into the book of First Peter as a church. So that's kind of where we're going for the rest of, of the summer. Now, in these parables of Jesus, what have we seen? We've seen him talk and teach about prayer. He showed us how to pray boldly and persistently. If you're a follower of me, you pray boldly, persistently. He's taught us about forgiveness. If we have been forgiven as much as we have in and through Jesus Christ, we are a people who have hearts that seek to forgive. He taught us about salvation, that it doesn't come from our doing, but a gift of his. We saw grace in the parable of the prodigal son. We saw the value of his kingdom last week. Such a, such a powerful story of, of those who found treasures and understood their value and said, I'm going to reorient my entire life in order to receive this great treasure. We also looked a few weeks ago at how Jesus says to be my follower You guard against self-righteousness and treating others with contempt. That's just not how we walk in the world. Well, today, today we're going to look at a parable that doesn't really talk too much about what's happening in this life. Instead, we're going to look at a parable that talks about, well, the life to come. So I'm going to read the entirety of the parable. I want you just to kind of listen, follow along in your Bibles if you're there, and then we'll see what Jesus has for us. So Jesus spoke, speaking to a crowd, and he said these words, verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This guy doesn't have a care in the world. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what simply fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Quite a contrast between these two men. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abram said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus and man are bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets. 
Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, have you heard that parable before? Have, have you heard that story? Are, are you familiar with it? If this is your first time actually hearing this parable, um, I can only imagine the questions you might be having right now. Um, there is a lot that is taking place here. And my hope is that I can answer some of the questions that might have jumped into your mind as you heard this story, story right? I'm going to do the best uh, that I can because Jesus, I think, when it's all said and done, told this story for a very specific purpose, but we're going to get to that a little bit later. What I want to do in order to get there is to start by just making some observations with you. There are some things that this text draws out that this story um, raises our awareness to. And the first thing that I want you to see, it's pretty obvious in the text itself, but it's something that we're not very comfortable talking about, even not very comfortable considering. There's something that just jumps out to me. It's not even the main point, but it just just jumps out to me from the story. Are you ready for this? Uh, Happy Father's Day. Here's your gift. Everyone dies. (laughs) All right? That's the first observation I want to make from this story. Everybody dies. When you, when you read the story, Jesus begins the parable, and you have these two individuals very much alive, one rich, one poor. But what does Jesus say happens to both? They both end up what? Dead. Now, as I said, that's not the main point of the story, but it's worth talking about today. This idea that everybody dies is worth addressing, especially in the world in which we're living, in the times in which you're living. Because if you notice, Jesus here has two individuals, vastly different, and they both die, which should draw our attention to something that we know to be true that everybody dies, but let's just just look at it together. Consider this. It does not matter how much money you have. It does not matter how little money you have. It doesn't matter your workout regimen, your your diet, your genetics, whatever. At the end of the day, we know, not just from the scriptures, but from our own observation, that everyone will die. Now, that's not the most uplifting thing to talk about this morning, but it is real. And one of the things that's been on display, I believe, during this whole COVID pandemic is exactly how afraid of death we are as humans. You think that's fair to say? When you see the response to this, we see just, especially in the secular mind, how scary death is. We're really the first society in human history to be shielded from death. What I mean by that is, Um, societies before ours, death happened in the home. You saw family members die. They were there with you when they passed away. In the last century or so, what has happened is death takes place where? In the hospital. 
It takes, it takes place away from the day-to-day life. In fact, um, somebody goes in the hospital and doesn't come back, and you don't necessarily see what happens unless you're there in the room. I have been there in hospital rooms over and over again. I have been with family members. I have seen their loved ones pass away, and, and there is a deep hurt, and there's a deep trauma when you see that happen. But I'm here today to say we live in a world where we try and shy away from this, where we don't look at it straight on, and that's not good for us. Because if we don't embrace this truth that everybody dies, we're going to ultimately miss the importance of what Jesus is going to be saying to us here. Because one of the things that the Bible actually does when you study it is it pulls back the whole veil on death. And it says some things about death that we don't hear every single day. Like, for instance, this. According to the word of God, we can say everybody dies. But we can also say this. Did you know death is not natural? Let that just sink in for a moment. You see, because scientists come to us and they, uh, and they talk about that. They, they talk about death being a natural part of, of life. In fact, if the Lion King taught us anything, it taught us about the circle of life, right? It's like there's this, this evolutionary cycle. Things live, things die, and that's how things take place. But I'm here to tell you, if you know the word of God, then you know death is not natural. What I mean by that is it's not part of God's design for the world. In the beginning, when God created things, we don't see death. Death did not exist in this world. Death leads to our second thing here. Death is a result of sin. Death came into the world. We experience death. Let's just be straightforward. Because of sin. Death isn't something that we should accept. Death isn't something that we should enjoy, something that we should embrace, because death goes contrary to God's design. But it exists as a punishment, as a judgment, as God said it would, for rejecting him, the giver of life. When you reject the giver of life, you automatically take death upon you. And so we can say, according to the word of God, everybody dies. We all observe that. But the other thing that we need to say is that death's not natural. Death is not natural. We should not embrace it. We should not accept it. If you are a Christian and you know that death is not natural, Natural, let me tell you why knowing that is important. Because every time then we as believers see, hear, or experience death in and around us, it should grieve us. Death serves the Christian as a stark reminder of the reality of sin in our world, sin that needs to be dealt with. So we definitely never celebrate it, but we also definitely should never, ever be content with it. And so when you hurt when someone dies, when you feel pain when someone dies, I come to you and say, well, now that's natural because what you're doing in those moments is you're embracing the reality, the reality of this is not the way God intended it to be. So should we as the people of God ever be content with death? The answer is no. As long as it exists, we see it as a mark of humanity's failure to live according to God's design. But let me just give you just a a little bit of a a glimpse of hope in this, and and maybe it's going to bring some of you hope. Uh, Trust me, this is going to get better as we get through it. But but there's this one passage I want to share with you that I hope will just even comfort your hearts right now in this moment. As much as I just said that death is not natural, I also want to address something. It's not as though death exists and God has no control over it. Can I read for you a passage? I'm going to. We're here at church, right? That's what we should be doing. Job, this is great. Write this down. Come look at this later. But but write this down. Job 14.5. 
since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You know what's being talked about there? The span of your life. I want to tell you right now that you will not live one day longer or one day shorter than God has planned out for you. Hallelujah to that. Did you know that? Did you know that God specifically had you in mind and he knows the length and breadth and time of your life? In fact, we love this verse, Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So as Christians, we come and we look at death and we, we say it, re, it, it exists. Everybody's going to die. We know it's not natural, but God hasn't like just simply let go of things and he's just letting things happen. He still orchestrates and knows the time and place of your death. And so we have great confidence to come and to say, if I believe who my God is and I believe what he's ultimately done for me, then I take great comfort and joy in knowing that every single one of my days is predetermined and planned by, by him. So we consider these things, but like I said, this isn't even really the main point of what Jesus is getting at. We're going to come to that right now. But first let me ask, how are we doing? Are you hanging with me? Are you doing okay? Is it is a little too, too heavy? I hope not. This is what we need. Jesus did not though, just simply tell us this story to remind us of the reality of death. His driving reason for ultimately telling this parable was to highlight this truth. Are you ready for it? Life does not end after you die. Yes, everyone dies, and we got to have a right biblical framework of thinking about death, but life does not end after you die. Just look at what Jesus says. In this story, he tells us, and what we see elsewhere in the scripture, is that both men in the story, they die, but is that the end of their story? No, they, they actually, they go on living. These guys are talking after death. They're carrying on after their physical death. They do not simply cease existing. It says that they go on. And so foundational to what the Bible says is, listen, we're not just this physical stuff. There's more to us than just our bodies. We have our souls. There is life after life according to the word of God. And friends, this is just one example of this reality. This is what we believe. There is more than just what we see in the here and in the now. And so contrary to what some would have us believe, there is still a life to come. The circle of life doesn't just, well, end with your death. But not everyone, if you notice, well, while there's still life after life, did you notice, here's the biggest point, not everyone experiences the same thing after they die. Life after life is not the same thing for everybody. I hope that you caught that in the story. Life does not end after you die. Jesus comes and says, you will experience one of two things after you die, an eternity of blessing or an eternity of punishment, an eternity of judgment. That's what's going on with Lazarus. That's what's going on with the rich man in the story. Over and over and over again, these two realities exist in the word of God, that after someone dies a physical death, that's not all there is. They either go to a place of punishment and judgment, often referred to as hell, or they go to a place of blessing, often referred to as heaven. In this story, what do we see? 
we see the rich man, after he dies, going to a place known as Hades, and the poor man going to a place identified as Abraham's side, or if you have an older Bible, it might say Abraham's bosom. And so what's happening here? What are these two places? The afterlife is not something that, at least in the secular mind, is all that popular. In fact, a lot of secular scholars and even some who proclaim to be Christians, I've seen this a lot over the most recent years, they've gone on TV or they've gone on podcasts or they've written articles and they've said this, and I've heard this, I'm going to show you an example in just a second. They've said, listen, you don't need a heaven and a hell when it comes to Christianity. Those are kind of outdated things. In fact, one of the big arguments that I heard, it makes me roll my eyes every time I hear it, is they say, you know what, hell in particular, that was really an invention of the medieval theologians um, and the priests of that day who were trying to control the masses. And because the masses were illiterate and not as educated, they created this idea of, of hell to scare people into obe- to obedience and to submission. Uh, hell's not a, a real place. It was, just, it was just something that was conjured up to control the masses. In fact, there's this one guy, I literally saw this a month ago um, in Time Magazine. Did you know that actually magazines still exist today? They, they still, they still, Time Magazine, it's online now. But there's this scholar, a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman, and he teaches at Duke University. Uh, he teaches in their school of religion. The crazy thing about Bart Ehrman is that he and I went to the same alma mater. We both went to Moody Bible Institute. He's a bit older than I am. But I know that he took the same classes that I took because I know people that knew him. And so Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible Institute. And here's what Bart Ehrman has to say uh, uh, about the idea of hell. He says this, listen, neither Jesus nor the Hebrew Bible he interpreted endorsed the view that departed souls go to paradise or everlasting pain. So Bart Ehrman and I go to the same school and now he's this theologian scholar and you'll see him on the news shows and he comes and he says, hell was not something that Jesus taught. Uh, uh, an eternal paradise, an eternal punishment, those, those things aren't real. To which I would have to say, and if he were here, I'd look at him and say, how do you get that from reading the Bible? How do you get that? Just look at this story that Jesus tells. Now, I know it's a parable, but we know he's not purely speaking figuratively. He, he comes to us over and over again. Jesus does throughout the Gospels, not just here. And he says three things about hell in particular. He says it's real. He says it's a place of punishment. And he says it's permanent. In fact, we see that in the story. One of the things that he comes and he says is that they each go to this place. He doesn't say hypothetically. He says they each go to this place. And he references Hades, which is what the people in his day would have understood as that place of punishment. And look at what Jesus says. It's a place of torment for the guy. It says that he's being tormented there. He says that, oh, Abraham, if you just send Lazarus to just dip, dip the, the, just a little part of his finger and put it on my, my tongue. Jesus acknowledges this, this place, and he says it's permanent. Notice how Abraham, he, Abraham comes and he says, listen, um, I know you want Lazarus to go over there, but we can't get to you and you can't get to us. This gap that exists between these two places, uh, it exists for a reason, and, and it's there for forever. But it's not just in this story. At the end of one of Jesus' teaching, I want you to, if you're taking notes, write down these passages because I think it would be good for you to look at these later. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 He's talking about the judgment that's going to come at the end of the age. And he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into 
eternal life. Airmen and other scholars come and they say, say, Jesus didn't teach about heaven and hell. What's he saying here? Or you know this passage. I'm not going to go read the entirety of it. I'll just, I'll just kind of summarize. Mark chapter 9, starting verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, do you know what he says to do? Uh, cut it off. Um, it's better to, to, to go um, into this life without having a hand rather than, than go into hell with, with two hands and, and receive that eternal judgment. He says, pluck out your eye. Why? Well, according to Jesus, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into where? Hell. Jesus says over and over again, including Matthew ten twenty eight, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in, guess where? Hell. Friends, Jesus just simply doesn't teach and make us aware that everybody dies. Jesus comes and he teaches us, listen, there is a real hell and there is a real heaven. Two places that exist. One of eternal punishment, it's permanent, and then one of blessing. Jesus is partially telling this story for this reason, to awaken us to this reality. And listen, he calls it Hades here. He calls it Gehenna elsewhere. In other parts of scriptures, they call it hell. In in other scriptures, you see heaven referred to as heaven, as paradise, as Abraham's bosom. They're, They're just these two places, these two places that exist where people will either receive judgment and punishment or place where they will receive blessing. Now, just talking about hell for a moment, um, it, can, it can get us kind of down, and, and it should. Um, fortunately, as, as I did say earlier, it's not the only place. <laughs> it's not the only place that, that people can end up when they, when they die. Um, there is also heaven that exists, but, but I, before I get to heaven and just talk about that for a moment, I, I want to address uh, something a question that I know is probably on some of your minds. Dave, you're telling me that Jesus proclaims that there's this place of eternal punishment, it's permanent, and it's real, and people are going to go there when they die. Here's my question, Dave. Why? Why does hell actually exist? And if it does exist, is this place of eternal punishment that, that's permanent, um, doesn't that seem a little over the top? I mean, seriously, have you ever thought that? I mean, it's a bit severe on the face of it. And if you feel that, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to think, well, I just, I got to believe in, in hell as it is. It's just, you know, that's the way it is. Like, if somebody came to you and said, why does hell exist? And it seems a bit harsh, how would you respond to them? How would you answer them? Because Jesus is telling you, As one of his followers, there's a heaven and there's a hell. And yet, what answers do we give? Like, is it right? Is it just? So let me answer that first question with this. Like, why does hell exist? The answer is actually pretty simple. Hell exists as punishment for humanity's rebellion against God. Hell is the means by which God, I'm going to say, rightly judges those who have sinned against him. Hell exists as punishment for humanity's rebellion against God. And do you know who has rebelled against God? Anybody want to take a guess? Anybody? Anybody? 
Everybody. In fact, one of the reasons why you know that everybody has rebelled against God is because, go back to the first point we made in the story, everybody what? Dies. That's the first mark of God's judgment against humanity for our sin. So why, though, does hell exist? I mean, we already die. Why do we go on being punished for all eternity by God? This is a big question because it seems a bit severe. Okay, I want you to buckle up for a moment. Sun's coming out. It's, it's a bit warm, but I need you to follow with me. Are you ready? Because this is important. Let me start by saying this. Punishment is always, let me take a step back. Just and right punishment is always based on the source of the law. And so it's important for us to remember that punishment for any crime is not determined by the criminal, right? How would that turn out? If, if when a cr- criminal committed a crime, you went to me and said, so what do you think? Huh? How, what, what should your punishment be? Is that how, is that how it works? No, the, the, the person who is punished is, is always based, uh, their punishment is based upon the authority who's responsible for upholding the standard, And so when you start thinking about hell and you think about this place of eternal judgment and punishment, what we must begin to see and understand that an eternal punishment for rebellion against God can only be right and just if the one that we have sinned against, the one we've committed the crime against, is himself eternal. And and so... We look at it from our perspective and we say something like this. This is what most people say. We think sin is not so bad. How extreme of God to punish it in hell when instead we should be thinking, what must sin be like if it results in sinners justly going to hell? See, we frame it from a man-centric point of view. We make God in our image. We say, how extreme of God to punish us in hell, when instead we should be thinking, our sin must be so grievous, and it is because it's against an eternal, righteous God, that the only way for it to be justly punished is with an eternity of judgment. I wrote this this week. We really need to get this and understand this. Otherwise, we are prone to question or to think wrongly about our God. And so Jesus comes to us in this story and he says, there's two places that exist after you die, one of eternal judgment, but then he also comes and he says, there's one of eternal blessing. That's why I said, fortunately for us, Jesus shows us the other side of the coin, if you will. He comes and he says, this isn't the only um, outcome for humanity. There is a place of eternal blessing. And we see that in the reality that Lazarus goes to this place known as Abraham's side. And a lot of people have wondered over the year, what is Abraham's side? I get Hades, I get hell, but what's Abraham's side? Is that heaven? My answer to you, as best as I can say, is yes. Jesus here is describing heaven. Why do I say that? Because Abraham, in him, all the covenant blessings of God were to be fulfilled. What I mean by that is God gave his covenant to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to be your God, and through you all the nations are going to be blessed. So when Abraham dies, 
the Jewish people understood in their mind that wherever Abraham went, he went there to be with God. And so guess where you wanted to be? You wanted to be wherever Abraham was. And so Jesus in the story comes and says, Lazarus, he goes to Abraham's side. The implication later being, he's there. He is in heaven. He is in this place where Abraham himself says, listen, rich man, you received your good things while you were here on earth. Now look at Lazarus. Lazarus is getting his good things here, and he is being comforted. And so, my friends, we saw what is hell, but what is heaven? Well, what is heaven? Heaven is a place of eternal rest and blessing because it is the place where God dwells. It's not a place of fluffy clouds. You're not going to get a harp and, and melodically play on it. Heaven is the place where God is, where you and I are going to experience no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, because it's the place where humanity gets to actually live in the reality of being made in God's image. In fact, long before Jesus ever came onto the scene, long before we had the book of Revelation, long before we had these new passage, uh, uh, these uh, New Testament passages that talk about the new heaven and the new earth, did you know this passage? Isaiah 65, you're going to love this, I did, Isaiah 65, verse 17, write this down, read this later, I'm going to just read you some of what the prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, said, for behold, God is talking, I create a new heavens and a new earth, this is Old Testament, folks, this is old school stuff, this isn't New Testament talk, this is, this is Old Testament, for behold, God is talking of a day, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's verse 17. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. Verse 23. And they shall labor, and they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. I will, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And, oh, by the way, dust shall be the serpent's food. Do you see what, what Isaiah is doing here as he speaks for the Lord? There is a day coming when humanity will experience the fullness and the beauty of what it means to know a world without sin, without COVID, without death, without broken relationship. There will no longer be a time when a baby lives but a few days and then, then dies. Eternity will be in our midst because we will be with, with God. Which one do you want? Which place do you hope to be? Jesus says, here's your options. Rich man, Hades. Abraham's side, heaven, which one's more appealing? I think the answer is obvious. I think the answer is, is obvious. But do you believe in the existence of these two things? Jesus says, you have to. You must. You can't pretend as though this world is all that there is. But if you believe in the existence of these two things, like how does that frame our thinking? How does that shape our, our day-to-day lives? Why did Jesus ultimately make us aware of all of these things? Well, because of this, it's a really big question, one that we always have to have an answer for. Why do some people go to hell and others go to heaven? 
Jesus is telling us this story to make us aware of the reality of these two places, but he's using those two places to highlight something, which is how does somebody get heaven and somebody get hell? What's the difference between these two individuals? The answer that I want to give you, and then we're going to look at it together, is this. No one gets heaven based on what they do, but only through dependence upon what God does. This is what Jesus wants the hearts of his hearers to grasp. It's based upon embracing what God has done, what God has provided, and not based on what you do. You say, Dave, where do you see that? I say, I made it up because it fit. No, it's here in the text. It's here in the text. It's not abundantly obvious in the story until you recognize something. There's one word that's repeated over and over again in this story. You see, in all the parables that Jesus ever told that we have recorded in the scriptures, this, friends, is the only parable in which Jesus actually gives a real name to one of the characters in the story. Did you know that? This is the only parable that he does that. So when Jesus only does something one time, what do you think? Do you think you should pay attention to that? Do you think, wait a second, he broke the pattern. Why did he break the pattern? Almost any scholar with his salt will tell you it's because the name Lazarus means something. It comes from the name Eleazar, which means, are you ready for this? God is my help. God is my help. Over and over again, we see that one man, one man whose name literally means God is my help, gets to heaven. The man, the rich man, well, he's not there. And the difference is in the name. Jesus is coming and saying, and he actually shows this. He says, don't you see? The difference between these two is not that one man is rich and one man is poor. It's not as though, oh, okay, here's how I get heaven. I am going to sell everything that I have, somehow become emaciated, and I have dogs lick my sores, and then if I'm just really object poverty enough, God's going to let me into heaven. That's not what it's about. It's not as though Jesus is saying it's wrong to be rich. Jesus is coming here and he's saying, no, what the rich man illustrates is a life of someone who has not sought to be dependent upon God, but instead dependent upon themselves, someone who doesn't recognize their true condition. And you say, Dave, how do you know that? Because look at what he says. He comes to Abraham when he realizes... I'm not in the place that I want to be. And he says, I don't want to be here. In fact, I don't want my brothers to be here. Please send somebody to go and tell them ab- about this place. And, and, and we look at that, we're like, oh, what a nice guy. Now that he's in hell, he gets it. Now that he's in hell, he realizes, oh, look at how sympathetic he's being towards his brothers. In reality, the rich man's heart is still as twisted as it was here on earth because he's coming and what he's doing is he's actually saying, Go and have somebody tell my brothers what he's doing is he's saying, if only I had had more information, then then I wouldn't be in my condition. If somebody else had come and told me of this reality, then I would have been okay. In fact, he comes and he ups his ante, and when Abraham says, no, I can't send anybody, then then he says, "Oh, oh, please, if you send Lazarus, if they see somebody who raises from the dead, then they will believe. And And Abraham comes and he says, oh, you don't get it. You had Moses. 
And you had the prophets. You had the very word of God, which in itself was sufficient to show you of your need and to show you of what God would provide. All Moses and the prophets did was point forward to an ultimate salvation that would come through the provision of God. And Abram is coming here and Jesus is coming here and he's saying, you rejected that. Your brothers are going to reject it. It doesn't matter if somebody raises from the dead. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe somebody that rose from the dead. The provision of God has been made known is what Abraham is saying. And what Jesus is saying in the story is the provision of God has made, been made known. And he's standing before the people and he's saying, it's me. Do you know how you get heaven instead of getting hell? It's through me and through me alone. And all those prophets and Moses, they all pointed to your need of me. Lazarus got it. His very name means it. God is my help. And so as we look at this story, Jesus is coming and he's giving us a lot of answers to these questions. What comes next? And how do I get what comes next? But the biggest one of all is this. He's saying this to say, will you today embrace and accept that I am that provision that you need? Because if you are, then then no matter what happens in this life, there is a life to come. And in that life, you will know and you'll experience the fullness of what you were made to experience. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted us to look at this parable this morning because if we get that, if we understand Jesus and ultimately what he's done for us, church, um, in the now, your future is secured. If you are in Jesus and you are one who says, God is my help, and I accept what he has provided for me in Jesus Christ, then what can man do to me? My future, your future is secure. See, there should be no one leaving here this morning who does not have hope in their hearts. To be able to come and to say, no matter how crummy or how bad or how much sin has been done against you in this life, if you fall fully dependent upon what Christ has done for you, if you see how much he has shown love towards you, then this is the future that you are looking forward to. Do you know that and do you believe that? Because in doing so, then we're able to take a look at our world and we're able to say, all right, pandemic or no pandemic, there is an eternity that awaits, one of judgment and punishment or or one of blessing. And that's the most serious thing of all. And I know that, well, that my future is secure because I've put all my eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ and clung to him and his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. But friends, do you know why we're a church that believes in going and sharing the gospel? Is because that there's a hell that exists. And if you're worried about COVID-19, if you're worried about riots, if you're worried about fill in the blank, well, if the rich man were here today, hear his words. My eternal torment, everything else pales in comparison to this. Just think of, of the love of God that he would allow his son to endure the judgment that you and I should receive so that we would be spared from that, man, I don't know about you, but that's cause for praise today. That's cause for hope today. And that's caused my own heart to say, I don't want to keep that to myself. 
I don't want my friends and neighbors to go and to live their lives in ongoing fear. I want them to live in a confidence that nothing can separate them from the love of God. My prayer for us as a church as we continue to hear from Jesus is that these stories would ring in our ears when we are confronting what we face each and every day in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to you, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge that, as we said earlier, every single one of us deserves what we see the rich man experiencing. And today, Lord, we've sung these songs of praise. We've, Lord, confessed our sin to you, and we've We've done this in recognition that it's only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that the judgment that we deserve, well, well, we won't experience because Christ did for us. So, Lord, let us not be flippant with our lives. Let us not be flippant with our praise, but let us be a people who go forward in great hope, in great boldness, in great courage in this world believing that we know that our future is secure, not based upon what we've done, but because we've been dependent upon you and you alone. And so, Lord, help us cling to these things and help us bring this hope to a world that so desperately needs to hear this message. And let us comfort, let us comfort one another in the sorrows of life, knowing that death is not the end. And so to you be the praise and the glory, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen and amen.